I've only been a pastor 22 years, and this, this is still a tricky little thing. Oh, it is good to be here. Good news, guys. We are going to be in our own beds tonight. It's probably going to be no children in your room. It's going to be remarkable in every way. I woke up last night, and I found that my sheet had peeled off my bed, so my face was stuck to my mattress. And it was a precious moment in 2022. I'm... But am I in like one of these shows, like, I'm a pastor, get me out of here type thing. I'm just trying to, just trying to suffer through this event. I just want to encourage you in your giving, not to add to um, Riley's exhortation to give. I think you give so incredibly well as a church. But just to stir your faith, we've also started a building fund in Warunga. We're aware that we need to try and put ourselves in a position to get a facility. Um, long term, we want to get a facility where we can actually meet on a Sunday and do everything out of, but you know, it's going to cost about 20 million bucks. So you look at it and you think, how are we ever going to do this? Ever. Ever. It's impossible, but you know, we serve the God of the impossible. And so increasingly, we wanted to put ourselves in a position. And the more I started asking around different folk in the States about their stories, I was chatting to John Payne, who serves on the leadership team with me. They also started a building fund a couple of years ago. Um, and they've been saving up as a local church, very similar financially to where we are in Sydney. And he's like, you know, this is just going to take decades. They even called it the Building Generations Fund, <laughs> aware that it's going to take a long time. Well, at Christmas time, he had an um, email from a friend that left the church some time ago, but often gives money back to the church, just wanted to bless them. And he said, hey, it's been an unusual year for me. I'm sending you a check over. So he's like, oh, that's kind. Thank you very much. Opened the check when it came through the post, $700,000 that this ex-member is given to the church. They could not believe it. And then there's a knock at the door, and it's the FedEx men. And in the States, there's this charity that you can give to anonymously. And so you can give money to this charity, and then this charity will give it to the people that you are trying to give to anonymously. So it's like a midway charity. He opens up the letter, and it is a check for his building fund from somebody he has never met. He doesn't even know who it is. $2.8 million. So that church got $3.5 million in a day. I mean, that's just amazing. And it stirred my faith into, oh my goodness, the Lord really does own it all. He can do what he likes. And so as a church, I want to encourage you, do everything you can in your, in your being to make a difference. But who knows all that the Lord may do. Um, it's just so encouraging. All right, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1. You know, in verses 15 through 23 that we looked at over the last um, two sessions, Paul introduces to us the supremacy of Christ. And as I trust you've seen by now, he is supreme in incredible ways. He is supreme in creation. He is supreme in personhood. He is supreme in the church. He is supreme in our glorious salvation. And from verse 24 onwards, Paul now gives us his supreme perspective on his own resulting ministry. In light of all that Jesus is in his supremacy, this is how Paul has been used by the Lord. And what's incredible about it, if we pay attention, is this isn't just a perspective on Paul's ministry. It's a perspective on all our ministries. 
And what I want to help us see this morning is we're actually all in ministry to King Jesus. We carry different roles, but we're all in ministry. So let's look together at verse 24 through to the end of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, wanting everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather for this final time around your word, Lord, I pray that once again we'll be freshly affected by your word, freshly encouraged by your word, that as we spend time with you this morning, we'd once again come away amazed at who you are and all that you've done. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of adoration. You are worthy of our lives. Show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just a little while ago, I heard from my friend Jared Mellinger, who's the lead pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church in Philadelphia, about a fake news story, a fabricated story that had been circulating a few years ago in the United States, but which had recently been mistakenly picked up again by a Jacksonville newspaper and then published as if it was true. Now, only in America. The title is Florida Couple Arrested for Selling Tickets to Heaven. (laughs) It's a bad start. This is what he says. The couple was arrested for selling hundreds of golden tickets to heaven for $100 per ticket, telling buyers that the tickets were made of solid gold and that each ticket reserved the buyer a place in heaven. According to the article, the Florida man said in his police statement, I don't care what the police say. The tickets are solid gold. They aren't just cut up two by fours, I spray painted gold. No, it was Jesus who gave them to me behind the KFC and said to sell them so that I could get money to go to outer space where in turn I met an alien named Stevie who said that if I get cash together, he would take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his planet. So try and send this innocent man to jail and see what happens next. And then this article ends with a statement that reads, Police said they confiscated $10,000 in cash off this couple, some drug paraphernalia, and a baby alligator. (laughs) And as I heard that story recently, I thought, yes, only in America, only in America could this item appear in a mainline newspaper and be believed by the masses. You know, the statement actually was then came out on an apology sometime later. The newspaper was apologizing. Hey, guys, sorry, it wasn't actually true. I feel really awkward about it. And yet, in all honesty, part of the reason why I think a story like that can get airtime and can actually be believed 
is because sadly there's so much unfaithfulness that sometimes can take place under the banner and name of ministry, is there not? So it can be perceived as maybe true. There are so many lies that happen under the banner of ministry, so many scams, so many crazies out there that are doing so many unhelpful and stupid things that causes these type of stupid stories to potentially be maybe real. And in sharp contrast to that reality, right here in verse 24 through 29, we have a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry. A wonderful picture of what ministry actually is, how God intended it to be. See, Paul's testimony of conversion is indeed quite a unique one. In Acts chapter 9, he is on his way to Damascus. He's been given permission by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin to pursue Christians. Why? Because he wants to murder them. He wants to find anybody he can, men, women, and children, who claim to love Jesus. He wants to bring them back to Jerusalem to have them tried and ideally murdered for their faith. He hates everything. He wants to do all he can to devour the local church with everything he can. And yet the risen Jesus Christ meets him on the way, and in a moment he goes from gospel persecutor to gospel proclaimer. In an absolute moment, his life is completely turned upside down. His eyes are open. He sees Jesus for who he really is, and he gives his whole life to loving Jesus and knowing Jesus and wanting to serve Jesus. And his ministry is in the history books. It's so much of what the Bible then goes on to talk to us about. So much of the New Testament is written by Paul. He became an apostle to the Gentiles and went on many missionary trips around the world to proclaim Jesus Christ and plant and build local churches for the glory of God. There's no doubt that God used Paul in a unique way. And listen, you don't have to be an apostle to be in ministry. You just have to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are in ministry for Jesus already. Listen, if you're here today and you are a parent, you are in full-time ministry to your children. You've been called by God to minister to them, to teach them and train them in the way they should go. You are in ministry already to your kids If you are married, you are in ministry to one another. You have a part to play in your spouse's life for the glory of God. You're called to ministry by God towards them. If you're single, like with all Christians, you too are in ministry. Ministry to your friends, ministry to your church, ministry to your life groups. You have been proclaimed by God to be an ambassador for Christ. You represent God himself in every interaction you have in your life. If you're a young adult, then you are in ministry to your families and to your colleges, your universities, to your youth groups, wherever you be. We are all in ministry called by God to play our part as ambassadors for Christ in ministry towards him. You don't have to be an apostle to be in ministry. That was unique to Paul. But we all have a part to play in this great ministry. And what a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry this becomes when we realize there are lessons in here for every single one of us. In the So what does this faithful ministry look like? 
in response to understanding that Jesus is supreme in all things, supreme in personhood, supreme in creation, supreme in our lives and in the church. How do I respond to that? How do I respond? How do we live once we actually leave the car park today? Or do our lives then, what are they meant to look like for the glory of God? Well, there's three things that Paul highlights in this passage through his own example that I think we're meant to learn about as well as to how we can make a difference in Parramatta and in Sydney and beyond. Here's the first thing. Number one, a minister's attitude towards suffering. Right up front, he wants to talk to us about this is what it looks like when you suffer as an ambassador for Christ. Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul's explicitly mentioned response to suffering when things are really, really hard is what? Rejoice! Rejoy yourselves! I mean, the first time I read that, you think, is this dude like some type of baptized lunatic? I mean, what is going on with that? I mean, let's just be real a minute. The last thing we can feel like doing when we are suffering is rejoicing. This is a startling and surprising response, is it not? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. What? Are you just having a bad day? Is this a misprint in my Bible? Does it say the same in yours? And then you examine different Paul's letters and you realize he's saying the same thing. Romans 5 verse 2. He says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Right. Philippians 2 verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. I mean, that doesn't sound pleasant. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What? I rejoice with you because you're being poured out like a drink offering. You're really suffering? Yeah. And make no mistake, in Paul's suffering, his suffering is both real and significant. I don't want us to like, you know, have some type of romanticized vision of the Apostle Paul. His suffering was real. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we see Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. They are stripped, they are beaten with rods, they are jailed. And then this happens. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, the very first time I read that, I thought, as a British person, I would have moaned and whined. That's what I would have done. You know, I'm stripped, beaten with rods, jailed. I'm weeping in the corner, whining. Why did I come here? I can barely handle like a glad wrap mattress. And yet this guy is stripped, beaten with rods, jailed. And what does he do? We should pray and we should sing hymns and thank God. And being jailed was just the least of Paul's worries. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, he details exactly what's happened to him in his life. 
He says, well, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I, I would hazard a guess that none of us have been stoned like Paul. None of us have been beaten you know, 39 times, time five in our lives. I doubt any of us have been imprisoned, as far as I'm aware, or adrift at sea any time recently. But Paul's conclusion is, listen, here's how we should respond to all those things. Rejoice! Be glad! Be filled with joy in the Lord. How is he able to say this? Well, he's able to say this because first and foremostly, he was a man that kept his eyes fixed on Christ. Whatever was happening here, his eyes were actually fixed on what he's just told us about since verse 15. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. You are supreme in personhood. You're supreme in creation for from you and through you and to you are all things. You sustain the stars. You sustain my life. I know how much you love me because you saved me even while I was hostile in mind. You saved me by your grace. And so, Lord, I trust you. It was a happy place for him. Even in the midst of difficulty. He was a man who kept his eyes fixed on Christ. And as he kept his eyes fixed on Christ, he was very aware that I can trust you in this because you will have a purpose and be intimately involved even in this. That's why in Romans 8 verse 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He knew at a very fundamental level when things happen to me in my life, I'm aware that you will use it for my good and you will use it for your glory. And I'm cool with that. He chose to humble himself before the Lord. And so when, even when suffering and difficulty happened, his attitude is one of, I'm going to rejoice in you anyway because I trust you and I love you and I know you're involved in this. And I know you'll use it for my good and your glory, and I'm good with that. That brought him joy. Paul, when he faced suffering, chose to love the Lord and trust the Lord. And every time you and I face suffering, we have a choice to make as well as to what we're going to do. See, our response to suffering matters. And I'm not minimizing suffering. I'm not minimizing what many of you may be suffering in this room. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just faithfully preaching the text. And the way we respond to suffering, it, it matters. C.J. Mahaney, the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches, says, What we know about the divine purpose for a trial makes all the difference in informing our understanding of the trial. But how we actually respond to a trial will ultimately determine whether we actually experience the divinely intended purpose of that trial or not. 
It's so true. When we face a trial, we can't just stay neutral. We have a decision to make. There is a fork in the road. I'm either going to swim or I'm going to sink. There is no in-between. I'm either going to trust the Lord and believe in His Word that He's going to use this for my good and He's going to use this for His glory and that I can trust Him because He knows me and loves me and will sustain me or we can go down the drain. We can't just stay nowhere. It's important for us to understand theologically where God is in the trial, but how we actually respond to that trial is ultimately what counts in the end. Tim Keller says the same thing. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. For trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. It's so true. Trials will either make you or break you, but you will not be able to remain the same. There is a fork in the road of what am I going to do? Am I going to love Jesus and trust Jesus and seek to be a trophy of grace and point great attention to him in rejoicing? Or am I going to wag my finger at him, feel like he's left me and just crumble under the weight of anxiety? And what anxiety actually says is, I don't trust you. You have not got this. We have a decision to make, a choice to make. We can't remain the same. Well, the Apostle Paul chose Christ. As he went through a trial, he decided in his heart, I trust you. I know you. You're supreme in all things. You're the one who spins the galaxies. You're the one who numbers the stars and sustains them so that not one is missing. You're sustaining my life. I can trust you. You will use this for my good and your glory. And I'm aware that you are using this suffering to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That I now have a part to pay in your great mission. Even now, I can be a trophy of your grace, pointing people to the all-sufficient King of Kings, even in my woes. I'm sure we've all experienced that in different times in our lives, have we not? You encounter somebody suffering and they're doing it with such poise and joy that you're like, what is that? The only explanation for that is Jesus. What a powerful testament it is, is it not? Every time you encounter it, and that was Paul. He was a walking testimony of the greatness and goodness of God. Listen, are you aware in your lives, that you are also filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions when you suffer. You're playing a part now as his hands and feet, as his ambassadors, showing to everybody else, this is what you do when you suffer. That's Christ. We can trust him. He's good. Are you aware of just how much this perspective can completely transform the way you suffer? Because instead of feeling like some victim to it, as if it's just happened outside of God's control, and if he does control it, how dare he? Which all just diminishes the whole thing. And yet when we stand and say, you know what? As sure as plot's flight was troubles for. We shouldn't be surprised, Peter tells us, when we face trials and troubles of many times. It's called life. But I believe in Jesus. I feel his peace even in this. We can trust him. I don't know how it's all going to work out. But I know he is faithful and good and he will use this for my good and his glory. And I'm happy about that. My life is not my own. It's his. What a testimony. 
And that's the opportunity every time we suffer. We have the opportunity to be a trophy of his grace. John Newton, the wonderful author of the song Amazing Grace, says God appoints his ministers, i.e. each of us, to be sorely exercised, both from without and within, that they may sympathize with others and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin and the infirmities of the flesh and the way the Lord supports and bears all who trust in him. We are living and walking testimonies to the kindness of God. Listen, if you ever are tempted to even have a hint towards the health and worth gospel, examine the Apostle Paul. It's a life of suffering, a life of difficulty, but a life of great joy and great rejoicing. He made so much of Christ even in the midst of his difficulties. My friends, that's the opportunity we have as well. For those of you that are parents, you can tell your kids to trust in Jesus because he's got it. But 99% of your work will not be done with your mouth. It will be done when they see you going through something. They will watch you very intently. And they will learn a ton through how you respond. That's ministry. It's the same with friendships. Your work colleagues. You can say what you like to them about, God's so good. But when they see you under pressure and under trial, it is then that they will be watching and it is then they'll be like, there's something different about you. There's just something different. That's ministry. That's what we do. Paul wonderfully models this well in terms of a minister's attitude towards suffering. And there's so much for us to learn here, isn't there? So much good stuff for us to apply and do business with our own hearts in before the Lord. But that's not where Paul finishes or stops. Because number two, we have a minister's charge to the word. He's not just hanging in there with suffering and rejoicing. No, no, there's more. There's this charge towards the word. Look at verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. What is the heart of Christian ministry? For every single person who is a Christian, the heart of Christian ministry is to make the word of God fully known. Are you aware of that? That's why it's so tragic when Christians remain immature for decade after decade after decade. And they're like, oh, I just don't like reading. Well, that's a significant problem. Because the main call on our life is to make the word of God fully known. It's to become experts in this word and to allow it to implement into people's lives. Why? Because it will change people's lives. It is so powerful in what it does. People do not need our philosophies or our politics or our positive thoughts. They need the Word of God. They need Jesus. They need what it says in this book. And this book is so powerful. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, if you just isolated those verses alone, you'd surely say, this is amazing. If we study this book and apply this book, I'm going to be like equipped for everything. Yes, exactly. 
Give yourself to this book. It will help you in ministry more than anything else. Facebook's not going to help you too much. This is going to help you a ton. Reading blog posts on parenting. You can do. It can be helpful. I would suggest reading the Bible about what the Bible says about parenting. It's going to help you a lot more. Reading different things about, oh, I think this is a new modern way of doing marriage. Yeah, that's very pleasant, very good. I would recommend the old, old way from the creator of the earth, who knows us. It's all in this word. It's God breathed from our creator of all, from the supreme one of all, so that we may read it and understand it and apply it so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, this book is alive. That's why it's so powerful. It isn't just like a, a reference encyclopedia of interesting facts. No, it is alive. It comes alive in our hearts to, to, to a way that it affects our hearts through the Spirit, and we just want to respond to it. It's a very different type of book to everything else because it's alive. It's God's Word. That's why we read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is the fruit of somebody who meditates on the Bible day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Listen, if you want to go through your life in a way that is stable and durable and fruitful, and whatever the season is, you're bearing fruit, it's all in this word. You just give yourself to this word, and it will change your life. My friends, your families and your church and your community do not need your philosophies or your politics or your positive nice thoughts. They need Jesus. They need the Word of God. And make no mistake, right at the center of this Word of God, every page whispers His name. At the center of this book, every section is ultimately about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what lies at the center of it all. That's why Paul says the following in verse 26 and 27. He says, make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's saying right at the center of this word that we're called to give ourselves to telling people about lives, this divine mystery, the reality that Christ can be in you, that you can be reconciled to God through the flesh of Jesus Christ, that you can be forgiven and redeemed and adopted, that heaven can be your home. That's the message that lay within this book. No wonder people don't need our philosophies, politics or positive thoughts, but instead need the word because they need the gospel. Because it changes lives. The great George Whitfield once said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Yes. 
My friends, that's the same for every Christian that is alive. Other people may be able to say it better than you, but they do not preach a better gospel. Just tell people. Just let it out of your mouth. Because it changes everything for people. My friends, don't get distracted with 101 other things. They don't need philosophies or politics or positive thoughts. For those of you that have children, your kids don't actually need your philosophies and your politics and your positive thoughts. They need the Word of God. They need what God says on things. When you're in your life group, people don't need your philosophies or your politics or your positive thoughts. They need to know, what does the Word of God say to what I'm walking through, man? Because this is the reality of what I'm walking through, and it seems foggy and it's difficult. What do I do? They need faithful friends to say, hey, I think the Bible talks about that. I think it talks about it in Philippians 2, and let's go there. But maybe, maybe it's this. That's what we need. We need Jesus. We need his words. We need what he has to say on different things. The Apostle Paul, I think, modeled that so wonderfully well. He was an expert in it, no doubt. And we may not be experts in it, but I think we should do all we can to get good at it. I think this is sometimes, sadly, where Christianity is is sometimes poor compared to other religions. I mean, I remember when I was uh, younger and still living in the UK, and this Mormon came to the door. He was about 15, tops. And he started talking to me about what he believed, and I start pushing back, and he is quoting verse after verse after verse. He's memorized these chuckies, and they're coming at me. And I'm like, oh, my word. This is a kid that has studied what he believes. He is giving an account for what he believes. It is wrong, but he's giving an account for it. And yet Christians can sometimes be like 50, and sometimes the basic answer is like, I don't know. You're like, well, find out. It's all in here. It's all in here. Study the Word of God. Just read it, and you'll figure it out. My friends, we must. We must not get like COVID kilos on us and just like, I don't know, I'm just relaxing. You know, No, 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 stop relaxing. We are on a mission, and we get one shot at this, and then we're gone. What people need is the Word of God. I charge you, give yourself to the Word. Massive part of your ministry. And then number three, there is a purpose in this. And that's the third point, a minister's purpose in it all. This is what Paul says in verse 28. I love this. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, here's the purpose, that we may present everyone mature in That's the purpose. That's the purpose of all of our ministries in the room. Whatever roles we find ourselves in, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our life groups, in our church, our one mission is that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, are you aware of that? That is your goal of your God-given ministry, to present everyone to the Lord mature in Christ. That's a staggering statement. Sometimes, I don't know about you in ministry, we can get real confused. What am I trying to do? What's my aim here? Well, he tells us right here. Here is your aim. Present everyone to the Lord mature in Christ. You know, that word present there 
in this particular context, has in view nothing other than the final day to come. He's bringing that moment where your friend or your child or your work colleague or whatever it will be will stand before God and give an account of their lives. And what Paul's saying, here's my objective. All throughout my suffering, all throughout my word ministry, I want to do all I can to help that that man or woman will be presented before the Lord on that day and not hear away from me, but instead will hear not only, not only welcome home, but well done, good and faithful servant. He wants to present them mature in Christ. He wants to do all he can to influence them with this word so that they may grow in Jesus and be presented on that last day with Paul standing in the background, thrilled that he got to play a small part in that story. That was his aim. Every minute of every day. That was why he kept breathing. Lord, help me to do all I can to influence them with your word so that they may be presented mature before you on that last day. You know, Martin Luther said, there are just two days on my calendar, this day and that day. I love that. He lived his life just two days. I'm thinking about this day and I'm thinking about that day when we stand before the king and give an account before our lives. That was the way the apostle Paul lived and I submit to you that's the way he's exhorting us to live as well. Two days. I don't know about you, but I think that can be challenging. Maybe particularly in Sydney that can be challenging. We are so wealthy here. And that could be the kindness of the Lord. I believe we have been blessed by God so that we can be a blessing to others. The challenge is we think we've been blessed by God so we can enjoy it all ourselves and eat, drink, and be merry. And then we hear things like this and we think, you know what? I, this is right. This is true. I should look at that tomorrow. Assuming we've got a tomorrow. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, when it's talking about the rich man. And there's this whole scene where Jesus gives a parable about the rich man. And, and the rich man's been really blessed by the Lord. So he's like, oh my, this is wonderful. I, I should probably build a bigger barn and store things. And, and like, as a Westerner, you hear that and you think, that's probably a good idea. Yes, we should probably store this away. But then God rebukes him and says, no, you missed the point. You were blessed to be a blessing to others. And tonight your life will be taken away from you. And what will you have? James echoes that in James 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's so easy, isn't it, to settle into our lives and think, well, next month I'll do this, and next year I'll do this. I think if there's one thing COVID has taught us is you don't know what next month may bring. Two days on our calendars. This day, where I'm in ministry for Jesus Christ. And that day. And this day, my primary objective is what can I do this day to influence somebody else so that they may stand more mature before Christ on that day. Let me ask you this to consider. Here's a question. If you were to live with just two days on your calendar, then how would that affect your God-given ministry this day? If all you had left of your life was finishing at midnight to nine, what would you do this day? 
What would you do with your kids that God's entrusted to you? What would you do with your friendships that God has called you to be ambassadors before? What would you do in your workplaces where God has carefully positioned you so that you may make disciples of all nations? What would you do? See, I think coming in with that mindset changes everything. In verse 28, Paul outlines three very important aspects of the ministry. He talks about how he's giving himself to proclaiming Christ, how he's giving himself to warning everyone, Everybody thinks they're fine, so he's just going around warning them, guys, you're on the Titanic. This is not going to be fine. It's coming to an end. He's giving himself to teaching everyone from the word and the gospel. If you were to live your life with just two days in your calendar, then how would that affect your God-given ministry this day? There is purpose to our ministry, and it is to prepare people for that day. And do all you can, humanly possible, to position those that God has entrusted to you, i.e. your communities and your workplaces and your universities and your families, to do all you can to present them one day before the Father as mature. Because you've influenced them with the gospel and the word and your life. You know, this is not a high, this is a high calling, is it not? (laughs) I mean, I read this. And you're like, oh my word, can we just go back to verse 15? That was so nice. You know, I like this stuff about the supremacy of Christ. This is so great. And then how he saved me, I'm affected by that. And then the rubber hits the road and you're like, oh my goodness, I have a high and holy calling on my life. All of us, as a Christian. A high and holy calling that involves suffering that I need to glorify God in. A high and holy calling that involves the word that I need to bring to bear on people's lives. A high and holy calling that involves preparing people for that final day. And you can come away, at least I can, thinking, who is sufficient for such things? How am I possibly going to be able to do this? This is indeed a wonderful portrait of faithful gospel ministry for somebody else I know more mature than me, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Well, that's where verse 29, I think, comes into its own. As Paul tells us how he does it. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil. My friends, there is going to be effort as a part of this. There's going to be discipline and energy and effort that is needed in our lives of ministry. And yet Paul struggled with all his energy that God powerfully worked within me. If Paul had a song, it was surely yet not I, but through Christ in me. Because his whole premise is, I ain't got nothing. I mean, it's just little old me having a go here. So I'm going to try really hard. But the only reason why I'm effective in this is because he gives me the energy that I need to do this for him. So yet not I, but through Christ in me, my whole ministry is based on what he is working in and through me. My friends, it is exactly the same for you. The one who is supreme in personhood, the one who is supreme in creation, the supreme in the church and head over all, The one who has saved you by his amazing grace is now telling you, and lo, I will be with you till the end of the age. You won't be able to do any of this by yourself. But Christ is in you, the hope of glory, and so you can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. As a Sovereign Grace Church Parameter, I want to encourage you 
keep looking up. Keep risking your lives for the sake of the gospel. Keep toiling. Never give up. And keep looking up. He will help you. The Supreme One of all will help you every single step of the way. He's not only sustaining you, He's calling you to a great and holy mission. So let's go do it. And let's keep looking up in the door. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that you have shown us so wonderfully over this weekend how supreme you are. Lord, we've got to see you in your glory in creation and in the church and in reconciliation. We've got to see you, how you've changed our lives. And now we see how you've called us. Lord, we are your ambassadors. As you are seated at the right hand of the Father, you've now called us. For as the Father has sent me, you tell us, so too and now I send you. Lord, thank you for calling us to yourself and thank you for calling us to ministry. Lord, I pray as we perform this ministry in our lives, oh Lord, would our song be yet not I, but through Christ in me. Lord, did you strengthen us every step of the way? Lord, as we gather around your word in the morning of our lives, would we be strengthened afresh that you are with us? And would we bring this word to bear on people's lives? Lord, would it be all be for your glory? <laughs> would you receive all the praise? In Jesus' name, amen.